Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode with a very bad cold. You may know me as someone who would love to go to Mars just so long as Elon Musk drives me there personally. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Caleb Scharf, the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. He recently wrote a short piece for Scientific American called Death on Mars, and it really fascinated me. In it, he explains why living on Mars might not be as easy as Elon Musk thinks. Shocking. Dr. Scharf, welcome to Rico Decode. Thanks very much for having so, me. Um, I want to get you to your background and, and everything else, but like, why don't you outline why you decided to write this piece, which was terrific. It was a very pithy and just a short version of we're going to die stupid and, um, and underground on Mars. But Yeah, so I, I should be clear that I'm actually really enthusiastic about what mm-hmm. SpaceX is doing, what Elon Musk is doing. Right, and, you said that in the piece. Right, yeah. and I think they know all of this that I'm going to say about the, the right. hazards of being on Mars. But I felt that if this is something that's out there, this proposition of putting perhaps a million people on Mars as a sort of hedge against existential threat, then we have to have a conversation about just how difficult that's really going to be. Because it's easy to make a soundbite where you say, we're going to put a million people on Mars and everybody loves that. And I think people who are not expert in this may not have the full picture. And as a scientist, it's always important, I think, to have the full picture. If you could put a million people on Mars, they should be informed. Right. And so my purpose was not to dismiss these right. ideas because I'm enthusiastic about that, but to have that conversation because Mars is, it's not the Earth, big surprise. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an extraordinarily hazardous and hostile place for us and really for any life that's evolved on Earth. You know, life that evolves in one environment tends not to do well when it's plonked in a new environment. Mm -hmm. And the thing I focused on in that little piece, which I called it Death on Mars, just to get get some attention and just to to bring it to a a boiling point, is that there are many potential challenges for humans on Mars. But one of the ones that perhaps gets a little less attention because it sort of, in, in some ways it feels almost familiar, is the hazard of radiation. So here on Earth, we're kind of lucky. We live underneath 60 miles of atmosphere. That's like walking around with you know, a meter of aluminum above you, shielding you from mm-hmm. a lot of what's um, coming in from space in terms of particle radiation and so on. Mars has an incredibly tenuous atmosphere, almost no atmosphere. It doesn't have a strong magnetic field, which also helps divert radiation. So we know that the radiation environment on the surface of Mars is brutal. 
right? It's it's more brutal than pretty much anything you can do on Earth. Mm-hmm. Even airline pilots who get exposed to radiation do not get exposed to this level. The closest we get is when people are on the International Space Station for a period of time. Right. But nobody stays up there that long, and it's still a somewhat different environment than the surface of Mars. So the point of all this is... This is a controlled environment. It's a controlled environment. You know, they're constantly having medical checks. It's not as exposed as Mars. It's kind of snug inside this thing we call the magnetosphere around the Earth. Uh, Mars is further out in the solar system. It gets less protection from... Uh, kind of cosmic radiation. So there's two types of radiation hazards. One come from the sun, and the rest come from the rest of the universe. It's these high-energy particles, protons and atomic nuclei, zipping around close to the speed of light. And when they impact stuff, they produce secondary particles. So part of what I wanted to bring up in the piece was this notion, people tend to think, well, you just make a shield, right? right? Just, yeah, yeah, I put a spacesuit on or I sit under a a roof of something. Mm -hmm. And that's true, but it has to be pretty extreme. Right. Um, Because some of the kind of cosmic radiation that you're exposed to on Mars, it penetrates through a lot of material. In fact, you probably need to be underground to depths. Which you talked about. Yeah, if you put three meters of thickness of Martian regolith or soil on top of you, you're probably pretty pretty protected, but you have to stay there. Yeah. (laughs) I think there's this perception that, yeah, you can shield, but that's only really works if you do nothing. Right. So part of what I wanted to bring up for the conversation was this notion of, okay, you get people to Mars, what what are they going to do? Are they really going to sit in a hole for the rest of their natural lives. Well, you know, it's so funny. Uh, one of the things, you know, popularizing the idea of traveling to Mars is interesting, and Elon's been doing it forever. And one of the jokes he said to me was, I want to die on Mars, just not on landing, um, which is, you know, he has a lot of things like that and the idea of living on Mars. So before we get to that, give me your background of your study in doing this. Because I, I do want to talk about the idea of where, where, where we are in space travel because it's something that is being pushed by not just Elon but Jeff Bezos and a number, you know, um, Richard um, Branson from Virgin Galactic, the idea of going up. He's wearing his spacesuit all the time now, goes everywhere in his spacesuit. Um, so, you know, and, and of course there's all this, the, the, the discussion right now around climate change and the idea of this existential suicide that's going on on this planet. So talk a little bit about your background to begin with. So I come at this from a perhaps an unusual direction. Mm-hmm. So my background is actually as a physicist, as a cosmologist, but right. also as an astrobiologist. So what is an astrobiologist? <laughs> so astrobiology is kind of an umbrella term for the effort to understand whether or not we're alone in the universe. And by that, I don't necessarily mean other intelligent life, just any life at all exists somewhere off the Earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do we come from in the first place and kind of where we're going? So it's the sort of age-old questions. But astrobiology is a modern effort to bring cohesion to the study of those questions, and it involves different fields. It involves astronomy, it involves biology, it involves chemistry, it involves geoscientists, planetary scientists, you name it. And part of what's driving it at the moment is the uh, exploration of the solar system has been spectacularly successful mm-hmm. in the last few decades. And, of course, we've now discovered planets around other stars. So a big focus is on understanding these so-called exoplanets and asking whether or not there are other systems out there that could have the conditions capable of not just initiating life, but keeping it going. Right. And I think keeping it going is kind of where 
I intersect with these questions of going to Mars, putting humans on Mars or other places in the solar system. And I'm really interested in both the challenge of looking for any signs of life out there, but also using that to place ourselves in some kind of context. You know, what what's going to happen here on Earth? Right. Really big picture. I mean, super big picture, cosmic picture. And what's playing out here on Earth, has it played out somewhere else? Right, so you can cosmos? see the patterns. Right. And so I think, you know, we're still in early days with this. We don't know if there's life elsewhere. But that's kind of where I intersect with these these questions of how do you sustain a civilization um, and how does life really function? I mean, in the article I wrote, I talked a little bit very briefly about our microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're totally reliant on this extraordinary community of microbes as humans, but also the environment around us mm-hmm. is, you know, it's this incredible mix of stuff that we don't usually perceive. And you go to another planet like Mars, well, that's not there. Yeah, and you're missing certain elements of it, or all of them. Yeah, you're, you're missing all that biology that you're you're walking through. You know, you walk down the street, you're in a swarm of viruses and bacteria. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry you have that's a cold. Okay. You I, know well about I'd this. like to be on Mars right now. <laughs> it's much more sterile. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I come at this from. So I spend a lot of time in my research thinking about what qualities enable a planet to sustain life in the bigger picture. So it's not just, oh, well, it's got to have oxygen and temperatures, but right. you know, what really initiates any kind of life, including really extreme organisms, um, some of which we see here on Earth. But then also the long-term evolution of planetary systems and the long-term potential for life in, in the universe. So I, I look at a lot of different things, some really classical science and some kind of way out so there. So some stuff. of it has to do with life as we know it, this, this life, uh, either, you know, our carbon-based systems, and the other part is having to do with other life that may not be like us in any way. Yeah, I, so it's, it's a good question. Is is life elsewhere in the universe built exactly the same way? We simply don't know. Mm-hmm. The suspicion is that there's something, there is something special about carbon chemistry. It allows mm-hmm. a degree of complexity that we really don't see in any other kind of chemical system. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean you couldn't have life that's built out of software. Right, right. <laughs> right? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> and there are people thinking about that, and, you know, we haven't, haven't got there Including yet. Including Elon, by the way. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. No, neural links. <laughs> we want to put software in our life, in our brains. But right, we'll and get of to course that. we already have this interesting symbiosis between mm-hmm. ourselves and our machines and our data and 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 so on. Um, so, you know, all of these questions come down to uh, or relate to the issue of what should we do in terms of solar system exploration? What's the role of our species in that? Are we just little machines that we send out occasionally to do a bit of science? You know, we send them to the moon, we pick up some rocks, we come back. Uh, or is there something more that we can learn about the universe by sending humans elsewhere? I personally think that's true. A human is an incredible science machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you place one human on Mars with a little bit of training, they're going to do more in a week than you can do with a rover in a, in sure. a year. Right. Uh, but there are challenges to that, keeping that person alive. But then there's also this question of forward contamination. Um, and that's, I didn't talk about this in my piece, but that's another challenge or another question that I think we haven't really had the full conversation about, which is you want to preserve humanity, you want to put some of us in a safety box. Uh, you know, we're kind of, we're dirty, right? right. <laughs> Humans are right. dirty, dirty, right. filthy things. And we don't know whether or not there's ever been indigenous life on Mars. And that would be a spectacular discovery. There's a bit of a risk 
that if you start plopping humans down, especially a million humans, that you confuse or confound the ability to see whether or not Mars once had indigenous life, even if right. it's just microbes. So there are also Which has happened when when the people move to this yeah, country in, right. on, on, a, on a different oh, level. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, humans have been With diseases you know, infecting each other sort of inadvertently and deliberately <laughs> for a very long time. And on Mars, it's more about confounding scientific data. The other side, the flip side to that is we've probably already contaminated it to some degree. By being there, by bringing the rover in. Dropping rovers down and then back in the 70s with things like the Viking missions, Mm -hmm. they were not sterilized to the same standards that we would today Mm -hmm. uh, because we simply didn't understand the diversity of microbial life. So, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces to this. There's a lot of science that's still at the frontier um, and I think that includes the question of human survivability in space. You know, we don't really know long-term effects of certain things, mm-hmm. uh, even something like gravity. So on Mars, it's a third right. Earth gravity, right? And that sounds kind of better than zero-G, but we right. actually don't know what that does to a human. We know the extremes. We know what it's like to be in 1G on the surface of the Earth. We know what it's like to be in microgravity in, in a space station or spacecraft orbiting the Earth. And we know that's pretty detrimental. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big problem. Bone structure. Bone structure, you know, cardiovascular system, all sorts of things, vision, um, you know, you name it. But, you know, maybe a third G kind of solves a lot of those problems, but maybe it doesn't. And we just don't know. We've not done that experiment yet. All right, so getting back to your piece, um, this is fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about Internet people that really do talk about this. Now, a lot of the re- the early space exploration was done by governments, and now current space exploration, unless there's secret stuff going on, which I assume there are at all times, is being done privately by people like Branson or Musk or others. How has that changed the idea of space exploration? Because then it becomes either tourism or this sort of, you know, fantastical way that Elon describes it, or Bezos, the same thing. I think overall there's, you know, it's extremely positive that there's this interest in commercial space flight. Certainly as a scientist, you know, what we want is to be able to loft things into space. We want, you know, the ability to put mass up there. And that's been stymied because of, you know, funding issues with places like NASA, what happened in the former Soviet Union and so on. It's been a real real problem. And obviously the, the shutdown of the shuttle program kind of diminished our capacity to put anything useful up in space, humans or otherwise. So what, you know, Elon Musk is aiming at with SpaceX and already accomplishing is is fantastic. The, uh, simply for science, the ability to put stuff in space and and Blue Origins as well. I I think I've been impressed that all of the major commercial space ventures seem to get it that there's a lot of sort of useful stuff you can do in space that isn't just about making money, isn't just about you know tourism or mm. or kind of bravado and showing right. off. That there's there's real substance behind that. And the development of this technology is fantastic. I mean, I should say that I think that the ability for some an organization like SpaceX to make the jumps that they've made rests on really the last 50 to 70 years of work that's taken place right, you know, by NASA, NASA by the, Soviet, the USSR the and China and so on. Um, but that's kind of the way these things go, right? right. You know, the, the, experiment, the early experiments often, uh, they're not done for commercial reasons. So, well, the internet. Right, absolutely. Internet's a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it leaves an opening for, for very creative people to come along and kind of snatch up the best of that, refine it, 
you know, make it more efficient um, and, and so on. So when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about the piece you wrote and about what happens when we go to Mars and what happens to the human body. Because one of the issues is, is can we actually survive there? And one of my favorite parts was that we become, we have a shorter life and stupid at the same time. <laughs> and I want you to explain that. We're here with Caleb Scharf, the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Caleb Scharf, the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. Caleb, can you talk? Are you Dr. Scharf, right? Dr. Scharf? Sure. Sorry, that's Dr. Fine. Scharf. You can call me whatever. What are the bigger universities studying this area? Every university has an astrobiology department, or where is the big center? Not, not every this? university. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number, certainly around the U.S. Um, obviously, Columbia has this. We're really a community of scientists around Columbia sure. from different disciplines. Places like Harvard, uh, in Seattle, University of Washington, Arizona, a number of major research universities have an interest in this, and they see it as a way to to bring some cohesion to different fields and to kind of take advantage of these extraordinary discoveries of planets around other stars, of solar system exploration, and things we're discovering about life here on Earth, life down in the deep ocean, mm-hmm. in hydrothermal vent systems, and so on. Um, so there are a number of places that have a, sort of an interest in astrobiology. What I want to get, like, who is paying for all this? What is, what is <laughs> where is, because it used to be the, go- the government was the major in the US, funder. in the US, NASA is perhaps the biggest funder of mm-hmm. astrobiology research. They've been really continues to be continues to be, yeah. And I think for NASA, it's it's become very important because it's it's integrated with some of their upcoming science missions. So, for example, they're launching a new space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and a big piece of the science that that's going to be able to do is to do with exoplanets and to do with looking for signs. Explain of life. the space telescope for people who don't understand it. So this is, you know, if you want to do really good astronomy, the best thing to do is to get off the Earth and away from our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is a pain. It, it, it makes things... It um, obscures It things. obscures things. It blurs objects. It also absorbs light at certain frequencies that you really want to study. So basically, a space telescope is a telescope in space, but you can build it slightly differently because it's in that environment. It doesn't have to have the same support structures and so on, but it enables you to make Images of very high um, resolution, very high fidelity. It enables you to be extraordinarily sensitive to very, very faint things out there in the universe. And that's critical for astronomy. So space space astronomy is a big deal for us all. Mm-hmm. And that is also that so that's part of the reason why NASA um, helps uh, 
fund astrobiology in the U.S. Around the world, there's there's money for astrobiology coming primarily, yeah, from the equivalent of federal um, federal sources. Mm-hmm. And the focus has been on because most people feel that NASA's been in sort of been beating back what its former glory days. Is that correct? Is that a correct idea of what's happening at NASA? Ah, so that's that's a good question. <laughs> I think I think for people working within NASA and with NASA, we still see the glory. Mm-hmm. Right? There's extraordinary stuff being done there, extraordinary amounts of science. I think the focus has shifted somewhat more to science. And of course, in, in recent years, NASA's, um, NASA's observatories, its, its Earth sensing systems, its, its theoretical modeling work has spent a lot of time focused on the Earth, right? NASA's kind of been at the forefront of understanding what's happening to Earth right now because of human activity. Uh, and that's become a really important part of their mission. I think it will always was to some extent. Yeah. You know, that's always kind of been their mandate. Um, that's played a, a much bigger role. But I think also the rise of things like exoplanetary science, um, more and more solar system exploration. I mean, I think people forget just how much stuff is going on in the solar system at the mm-hmm. moment. You know, NASA doesn't just have probes at Mars. I mean, it's got things orbiting Mars. It's got things on the ground. It's got missions heading out to comets and, and asteroids. It's got plans afoot to go back to um, look at the moons of Jupiter. There is a spacecraft orbiting Jupiter at the moment, Juno mm-hmm. taking images. There's a mission to the sun right now. The Solar Parker probe is this extraordinary mission to get as close to a star as we might ever get, and it's right. in, in process. How close is that? You can't get too close, correct? You can't get too close. Get I forget up, the right? precise details of the distance, but it's yeah, it's within a few tens of millions of kilometers, I believe. But even so, you need an enormous shield. Right. Um, so this spacecraft has a big shield that it keeps pointed at the sun all the time to, mm-hmm. to protect it from the thermal environment, and it kind of peeks around the sides to, to do the science. Mm-hmm. Um, really remarkable. But a lot of the attention has been with private People, how do you you all who are in this in this area? How do you look at the interest by billionaires? Essentially, in this case, there's a trio of them, but there's many more. I'm sure there. I don't know the Chinese version of this. There probably is. There's a Russian person probably involved, but it's been very private oriented with being funded and made into businesses. How does that? What is that like? The the idea. This is something that's not not you know it's new. It's relatively new. The amount of money. And businesses that are being created. It is relatively new. I think for the scientific community, we're uh, cautiously optimistic <laughs> that it will be you know, useful for us. I mean, I think everyone's been very encouraged. Both um, SpaceX and, and Blue Origins are actually really good about interacting with the science community. Uh, Blue Origins, for example, will take up payloads for their suborbital flights, little science payloads. And so they're working with um, the, the academic community. They're working with students. So students can run projects in in low gravity situations and so on. And of course, SpaceX is is launching not just commercial stuff, but it's it's launching stuff for NASA and so on. You know, I think the, the cautiousness and in that optimism, some of that comes from, for example, one of the things SpaceX is doing is launching these Starlink mm-hmm. satellites to make a, an internet system from, from space. And we know that there's been a lot of discussion recently by astronomers saying, well, these things flying around in the sky are actually problematic for doing astronomy because they get in the way. Right? Mm-hmm. They streak across your, your images. Um, and there's a lot of debate about that. But we've been encouraged that SpaceX responds to that. You know, mm-hmm. They're talking about, I think they've already put up one test, Starlink, which is kind of painted black in an effort to mitigate this this right. problem. Uh, so, 
Yeah, overall, speaking personally, I think for a large segment of the science community, where we are optimistic, this is going to this is going to be good for everyone. In that they're spending the money to do this exploration. They're spending the money to do exploration, and the the launch vehicles and the launch systems they're producing will ease the way to putting science up. I mean, if you can put something in space for less money, the odds are greater that you'll be able to do it. To do it more. Yeah, absolutely. More. Is it ever a problem that that this is that this is determined by individual people rather than a government that's elected by the people? Some part of part of my ire with. Uh, with very wealthy people, say they decide we're going to suddenly now look at education. We're suddenly going to look at this versus what our government should decide what we need to look at. Yeah, it's a good or question. Or it allows the government to abrogate its responsibility because space seems to be something the government should be paying for and at, for the rest of humanity. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think um, it can be problematic if— yeah, someone has a big idea, they've got money, they, they just chase down that very narrow corridor. Um, you know, is that the right thing to do? I'm not sure. It, it's, it's always kind of curious to me because these are people who presumably are pretty good about thinking about how to hedge their bets. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, they seem to be prone to lurching off in a very mm-hmm. specific direction. Um, and, you know, okay, sometimes they'll they'll accomplish great things. Other times you can crash and burn. Right. I think government tends to be actually better at hedging its bets in many respects because there's this sense of absolute responsibility. This is taxpayer money. This mm-hmm. is this is a large fraction, well, a, a fraction of um, GDP that you're putting into these things that not necessarily everyone is interested in. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's really fascinating to see it play out. And it's, um, it's surprising that people who otherwise presumably have to be careful mm-hmm. will lurch off in these directions. These, I hate to say it, there's, there's definitely ego involved, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> ego. What is the difference between what, say, Blue Origin is doing and SpaceX? How do you all look at it in the community? Uh, so Blue Origins feels a little more secretive. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it is more secretive. So we only kind of see— Jeff Bezos's. Yeah, so we only kind of see bits and pieces. Um, it feels that they're somewhat behind at this point, at least in terms of their capacity to put stuff into space. I mm-hmm. mean, they're still doing essentially uh, suborbital work. Having said that, they clearly have a blueprint in mind. They have plans to go much bigger. And, uh, you know, it'll be fascinating to see if they kind of catch up and and the different strategy that they, they follow. I mean, they are following a somewhat different strategy already with this focus on suborbital flights mm-hmm. ahead of doing the full orbital work. Right. And then Richard Branson's efforts, Virgin Galactic. Yeah, that I find, I, they too have actually been quite good about offering opportunities to put science payloads up, mm-hmm. and modest scale things. I think there the issue is perhaps that they're not at this point aiming for orbital um, vehicles, right? It's still suborbital. It's mm-hmm. still very much sort of space tourism is, is seems to, it's the public um, yeah. focus. There too, I think, cautious optimism <laughs> from scientists. I, we, we like to see all of this happening, uh, you know. I mean, on a personal level, I grew up thinking about space and so on. That's part of the reason I ended up being Mm -hmm. scientist doing this stuff. And it has been enormously frustrating to to feel that we sort of let go of a bunch of things Mm -hmm. after the Apollo era and so on. I understand why, but, you know, we did let go of a lot of stuff. Right. And so then leaves us with Elon Musk, who's, I think, the center of a lot of this with SpaceX, which has done the most aggressive stuff and talked most publicly about this idea of living on Mars. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, watching what SpaceX is doing. I mean, when you see the, you know, the boosters returning and landing simultaneously mm-hmm. at Cape mm-hmm. Canaveral, it's kind of like science fiction. Right? Mm-hmm. Even, even I feel like it's science fiction. They've definitely been the the most aggressive and they've made the most progress. I mean, they're already you know, resupplying the space station. You know, so they have government contracts. They're, they're kind of a long way away and into it. And we saw just recently they did the um, emergency test for the Falcon, for the crewed mm-hmm. system and so on. So they're clearly getting awfully close to putting humans at least into um, low Earth orbit. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about then this idea that Elon keeps putting out that we're going to be living on Mars. And I think it's I think it's probes in 2020 or we're starting to build the stuff in 2020 and then living there in 2050. Do you think this is a, a realistic schedule? <laughs> I think it could be conceivably, um, partly because you know, a lot of work has been done over the decades in terms of thinking about how you would accomplish this, how mm-hmm. you would get humans to Mars, even just you know, small groups of humans. So a lot of the, the legwork has been done in terms of the theory. I think the, the real hurdle comes with the unknowns. And so this comes back to what I wrote about in the article, mm-hmm. the things that are potentially very detrimental to, to humans on Mars. So there's the radiation environment, there's the gravity, there are things about the the surface chemistry on Mars, the dust on Mars is probably really nasty stuff. You don't want to get it inside of you. Um, and then there are these longer-term questions about what a human really needs to survive. Do we need to bring along all of our microbes? Do we need to bring along our potted plants and stuff like that just mm-hmm. to, to make the environment uh, suitable for us? So can we can we get stuff to Mars? I think we're on the cusp of doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. we can take small things already. NASA does that. Can we get big things and can we get people to actually arrive at Mars? It feels like we're really on the cusp of being able to do that, mm-hmm. driven largely by SpaceX. Uh, the, the really tricky question is what state are people going to be in when they arrive at Mars? We can kind of guess at that. We know there's going to be some radiation damage. Um, there are some kind of scary pieces of evidence that there's neurological damage with particular types of radiation. There's been work done recently just last year. Colorado State University did a study admittedly using mice, but um, mimicking as closely as they could the kind of low-level neutron radiation you might receive both Mm -hmm. en route to Mars and on the surface of Mars. And they found quite extensive neurological changes in the the mice. Um, Now, that doesn't necessarily translate to humans, but it's a concern. And this is why I wrote mm-hmm. the, the thing about the kind of cheeky statement about mm-hmm. you're going to be either dead or stupid or both on Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a real concern. Uh, so the difficulty is we haven't done the experiment before. Right. Uh, and I think a, a good parallel is looking back at you know, the development of uh, – space launch systems in the first place. Each one is an experiment. And we've had experiments going on since the 1950s, basically, of launching stuff. And what SpaceX and others have done at this point is based off of all of that experimental data. But now we're kind of transitioning, we're going across a, a frontier, if you will, to a place where actually we don't have good experimental data anymore. Right, so we don't know. We just don't know. We can hazard a guess. Um, We can use what we have in terms of astronaut exposure on the space station. We can use what we have in terms of what happened to the Apollo astronauts. And we do have ground truth data on Mars, right? We have rovers, we have probes. So we have some idea of the surface environment in, in greater detail than we used to. 
but we uh, just don't know. We just don't know. And so I think the place where I get nervous is there's the pace at which someone like Elon Musk is talking about doing this. It's super ambitious, right? It sounds mm-hmm. great. It's real Silicon Valley stuff. Yeah. We're going to transform the world in two decades. Obviously, they know that it's going to be challenging. Their scientists and engineers know this. But it's it's going to come down to what's the strategy? Do you put a few experiments out there? And those experiments are people. Right. Right? And this is something the the government and NASA have thought about for a long time. They have an extraordinary wealth of uh, data on human activity in space, and they have very strict rules about what you can and can't do to mitigate risk. But for something like Mars, it is such an unknown in many respects that you're going to have to do experiments that are probably going to be fatalities. You're going to learn a lot from that, Mm -hmm. um, and you're probably eventually going to learn ways to mitigate some of the risks. um, Over time. Over time. But it's going to be... I think that's a kind of new frontier where private industry is putting people's lives literally on the line in a way that you know, is more explicit than sending them down a coal mine or something right, like that. Right, absolutely. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk more about this with Caleb Sharp. He's the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Caleb Scharf, the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. We're just talking about what happens to humans. So you're essentially saying the only way we're going to know is by putting people up there. I think in the end that's true, yeah. Right? Because that's yeah. it. We're yeah. going to have to right. put— right. And not a million people. Like, <clears throat> how many people— Like, right, right now, what do we know as the impact of space on humans from astronauts and others? What, what, is, what are the general conclusions? So there's, there's a, a variety of things. There's clearly short-term impacts. Uh, you go into to low gravity, so the sort of environment you'd experience en route to Mars, um, and unless you— spin things up, spin spacecraft up to make some sort of artificial gravity, you're going to be subject to micro-G. Physiologically, that's super problematic. You immediately start losing bone density. Um, That also 
um, com- can compromise your kidneys because your kidneys have to flush all that calcium out of your body. Right. Uh, there are cardiovascular changes. There are body chemistry changes. Your microbiome shifts. There's almost immediate epigenetic responses to being in space. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the twin experiment that was done with the yeah. Kelly brothers mm-hmm. demonstrated this as well. That, that there's immediate so-called epigenetic response, which means the way that your genes... It's one stayed up longer than the <clears> other, <throat> correct? Well, one stayed on Earth and the mm-hmm. other went up for a year. Right, right. So, and they were carefully monitored ahead of time and afterwards. So it was kind of the closest you could get to cloning yourself right. and then making a comparison study. So mm-hmm. it's a really fantastic experiment. And that's still being analyzed. The results of that are still being dissected and, and poured through. But it's clear that there are really immediate short-term effects of going into space. that are, Which are recoverable? or They appear to be mostly recoverable. By coming um, back to Earth. Uh, by coming back to Earth, yeah, the biggest impact it's generally study is that of the, the low gravity environment. Mm-hmm. Now, radiation you know, is an issue. Uh, my understanding of the statistics is that, for example, during the Apollo era, um, there was a much higher incidence of cataracts later on for mm-hmm. these astronauts, and that's radiation damage. Right. And, and that seems to be a direct causal connection that, you know, if you spend enough time in space, you'll get cataracts, and you're going to obviously have to deal with that, which right. is not a... a enormous challenge these days, but nonetheless, right. gives you a sense of you know, the direct impact on Premature cataracts or cataracts? Absolutely, premature cataracts. Right. Yeah, okay. much higher incidence of, of cataracts. Mm-hmm. But then there are questions about, so for example, there's a recent study on vision. And so there's some evidence that vision gets compromised for astronauts in, in low gravity and so on. But those are all still comparatively short term. I right. mean, the, the longest anyone's really been up in space is not that long. It's you know, maybe a year or I think some of the, the, the Russians have been up for more than a year. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that time in space is also cumulative. So these are astronauts who've been up for come a month back. or two. They come back, they go back again and so on. What we don't have a good idea on is both the the environment that the astronauts are exposed to en route to Mars. So that may be a six-month journey, right. right? Which isn't too bad, but it's also a different radiation environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there are all sorts of psychological issues because you really, you know, you're out there, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just orbiting the Earth. But then the idea of long-term environments, for example, on Mars, um, you know, let's say you stay on Mars for two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, we actually have really no idea what that's going to do to you. Right. Um, so there's the radiation challenges, there's this peculiar lower gravity. Mm-hmm. It's not zero-G, but it's also not Earth normal. It's right. roughly a third of the, the force. So we don't know what that does to you. And the radiation environment is not just stronger, it's different. There's a different mix of particle radiation, right. some of which is is very, very damaging and is hard to shield against. In fact, if you put a shield around yourself, you encourage a certain amount of radiation damage. Because? These, well, these high-energy cosmic rays, these are particles that mm-hmm. come from the rest of the galaxy. Some of them come from you know, supernova or colliding neutron mm-hmm. stars. They have so much energy that they will penetrate through a shield, but then eventually they'll interact with something. And when they interact, they don't just stop. They produce a spray of secondary radiation. So wow. they will release things like neutrons and gamma rays. But that will happen deep inside your shield or deep inside you. Right. And that's you're behind that tough. Right. <laughs> um, and some of that kind of radiation... So it's amplifying it. Your shield well, amplifies. It can actually put you at more risk than not having a shield. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of strange. Yeah, if you didn't have a shield, some of that radiation would just zip through you mm-hmm. and perhaps not really do anything. Uh, so it's a 
complicated equation. You have to balance out, you know, how much shielding do I need? What do I make the shielding out of? That also impacts the, the severity of, of that secondary radiation. But things like the neutron radiation, as I mentioned, have been shown, we think, to cause neurological damage. Yeah, talk about this a little bit, this idea of getting dumber. So it's still controversial. Mm-hmm. I have to be clear about okay. that. Um, there have been a number of, of studies done on it, but not as many as we probably need to do. <laughs> the most recent one, as I mentioned, tried to do a, a, a more realistic job at setting the kind of radiation environment and seeing what it would do to you. The bottom line is this radiation, it comes into your body, um, it'll crash into an atomic nucleus somewhere inside you, and it will damage molecules. Um, so it basically starts breaking up molecules. And it looks like in the brain, the, the result of that is reasonably severe or could be reasonably severe neurological damage. Your neurons basically get get you know, broken. I mean, you, <laughs> the, the molecular structures inside your neurons get degraded. Um, and the study that I've seen from last year um, suggested that, yeah, it's severe enough that there are behavioral differences they could see in the, in this case, the mice. Mm-hmm. Um, there were sort of social anxiety problems <laughs> with the mice. So they, they got dumber or they got... Well, yeah, so... <laughs> well, they can't tell us. Right? I think I think it's hard to tell with the, the mice. But yeah, the cognitive abilities seem to be impaired. Mm-hmm. So the ability to function in an efficient and um, sort of baseline normal way were definitely impaired. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, you could you could say that was getting dumbed down to right. some, some extent. So you'd get there and you'd just get dumber while you're there. <laughs> yeah, you'd have problems focusing, right? So how do you stop that? Is there a way to stop that? Wear a helmet? Is there a... So, yeah, you could really improve shielding, mm-hmm. right? Do a lot more to shield yourself, um, wear a dosimeter constantly, constantly monitor the radiation levels that you're getting exposed to. We do have data, obviously, on the Earth of you know how much you can kind of survive on Earth mm-hmm. uh, from people working in the nuclear industry, astronauts as well. And whenever, right. whenever there's a nuclear disaster, that gives new new data. And, you know, humans are resilient up to a point. Mm-hmm. But I think that the challenge for people's long-term stay on Mars is just that, the long-term. We just don't know. So, yeah, you could you could do a better job at shielding yourself, be much more careful about certainly shielding your head, mm-hmm. um, really keeping track the, every time you get exposed, you're know, monitoring that in detail. It may also be that there are um, drugs that can be developed that help with this, mm-hmm. um, you know, cleaning up some of the, the free radical compounds that get produced in your, your cells because of radiation damage and so on. There may be certain therapies that could be developed. But my understanding of that is it's pretty early days. Right. You know, we don't have a magic pill that you can drop. You can take and, when you get right, to Mars. Get, oh, now, okay. one of the things you talked about was being underground, that that would protect you in some way. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of amusing to me. Elon Musk obviously had the boring company, and you kind yeah. of think, hmm, I wonder if he's thinking about yeah. drilling tunnels on right. Mars. Um, yeah, so just putting a, a lot of material between you and the rest of the universe is, is a good good way to do this. So we think from data um, obtained from the Curiosity rover on Mars mm-hmm. that has radiation monitors suggests that if you had about three meters of rock between you and open air, you'd probably block off pretty much everything. You could you could bring the radiation environment down to a, a, a sustainable level, a level that shouldn't cause any undue problems. Mm-hmm. Now, on Mars, there are actually natural environments that could provide that kind of habitat. Mm-hmm. So there were caves, we think, and lava tubes. And 
all of those could provide fantastic habitats. But they're big, and they would require significant engineering to obviously make them habitable. Right. Um, you might just plop your habitats inside them, but you have to get in there, right? Mm-hmm. You have to get down there. And unless you're taking heavy lifting equipment with you to Mars and, you know, diggers and JCBs and all this, right, caterpillars right. and so on. And the people making them could get radiation damage while they're making them, correct? Right, yeah. So any exposure for for people. So maybe this has to be more automated somehow. And so that feels like a lot of development. (laughs) It's a lot of R&D that would have to be done if you're going to go that that route. Um, But we do think there are these natural environments that you could go to. The flip side to that is, you know, thinking longer term, you know, maybe that's what you have to do right on Mars. Then you kind of ask yourself, you know, really a million people in a cave on Mars for the rest of their natural lives. Right. Wouldn't doing, you rather be here while this right. is disintegrating? <laughs> doing, doing not that much because they've got to constantly monitor their, their radiation levels mm-hmm. and then there's exposure to Martian dust and all this kind of stuff. So that's the other piece of it I wonder about. And you know, I'm sure others have thought about this. You know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, what does that million people do? You know, is their life totally devoted to, you know, growing alfalfa in the hydroponic garden and, Mm. you know, growing beans and, (laughs) you know, looking after their health? Or do they do something else? Do you create an economy? Do you create a a full society? How does this work? And then you get into speculation about, well, are you going to create a dependent society on Mars? Are they going to be so dependent on Earth? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think we know the answer to that, whether you can create a totally self-sustaining, independent Mm-hmm. You know, safe place on Mars for any number of people. To do that, not, and certainly not a million. So let's finish up talking about, are there better planets to look at, or is Mars <laughs> the only one? Mars seems to be the focus of most people. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's kind of interesting. I, Mars, I think part of the reason is sort of historical. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of, we've thought about Mars for a very long time. It goes back to the fantasies about canals on Mars right. and all this kind of stuff. It's better than Venus, for humans. It's better than Venus. <laughs> That's kind of, I see that as the tourist poster. It's better right. Mars. It's better than Venus. Right, okay. <laughs> um, you know, Venus has an extraordinarily thick atmosphere. The temperature on the surface will melt lead. It's nasty, mm-hmm. nasty. You could live perhaps in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh-huh. That's a whole different ball game. Meaning you could. In floating platforms. So at a certain right. altitude in the Venusian atmosphere, it's actually like, you know, it would feel like being in this room. Except right. You couldn't breathe the atmosphere. Right. Um, and so there's been some talk about putting floating habitats in the atmosphere of Venus. With oxygen pumped oh, in. Oh, yeah, with oxygen. With, you know, you'd have to do a lot to keep right. yourself going. You know, some, you know, is there anywhere better than Mars? Perhaps not, but that's not saying much, right? <laughs> right. I mean, Earth is really the place right. in this particular planetary system. Um, it's not just the place that gave rise to us, which means that we're perfectly well adapted to because we have to be. Um, it really has a, a, an environment that doesn't exist anywhere else on the mm. planet. And, you know, Mars, the interesting thing after I wrote this article is just all the, not exactly hate mail. Oh, I bet. <laughs> but the, the response, and it's very bifurcated. It, it's, it's people who say, we shouldn't be doing any of this. We should look after the earth. We should stay put. And then there are people who That's are me. completely going, oh, sure, yeah. And I find myself flipping back and forth right. between those two things myself, which tells me there's probably some way to make a compromise. There's some mutually beneficial thing here, but we haven't quite put our finger on it yet. Mm-hmm. But the perception of the pro-Mars mm-hmm. lobby is interesting. I think people, maybe they've seen 
movies or Matt whatever. Damon hanging yeah, up there sure. making and, potatoes. You know, and it, it, it makes it look bad, but not so bad. Uh-huh. But, you know, Mars is horrible. Right. <laughs> Mars is an awful place. I mean, mm-hmm. I say to people, imagine I told you you have to live on the top of Everest for the rest of your life. Right. Here's a little pod. Um, you know, you've got to figure out how to make oxygen. You've got to figure out how to grow food. That sounds pretty awful. And that's really nice compared to Mars. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? That's right. like a kind of nice, comfy mm-hmm. environment on the top of Everest. Mm-hmm. So Mars is horrible. Mm-hmm. But it's accessible in a way that, for example, Venus isn't, or the outer solar system is much more difficult to get to. Um, it has some gravity. It does have natural resources. You mm-hmm. know, there's frozen water. There's frozen CO2 at the poles. So there, there's plenty of natural resources in principle. Um, it still gets a good amount of solar energy because it's not so very much further from the sun. It's a lot of land to explore. There's mm-hmm. actually more surface area on Mars than all of our continents put together on Earth. Right. Uh, so as a target of exploration, uh, there's scientific reasons for going there and so on. So, so I flip back and forth. You mm-hmm. can tell I flip back and right. forth between, you know, Mars is god-awful and you shouldn't go there and we should do a better job here on Earth to, mm-hmm. well, you know, really long-term, maybe it's not such a crazy idea. Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced we know how to sustain humans out there. The moon, no. No? I mean, the moon, the moon is... is close, mm-hmm. which is good, um, but it is probably more difficult than Mars um, mm. because the surface environment is even tougher, um, even stronger temperature variations, even more exposure to, to radiation and and so on. And you know, Mars, I think you, you can just about imagine you know, walking around on Mars in a reasonably modest spacesuit, right? Mm. On the moon, that's not going to happen. Right, You're always okay. going to be bundled up. You're going to... So it is kind of, it's almost an emotional reaction mm. um, that the moon feels even more alien. Right. Even though it's so close and in that regard would be much, much easier to set up camp. Right. So it's possible, and I know NASA has talked about this over the years, one strategy would be to learn more about how you do any of this right. by setting up on the moon. Treat that as an experiment. The advantage is it's close. Right. So in principle, if something goes horribly wrong, you, <laughs> you might actually people get back. people back or send, you know, emergency supplies or equipment or whatever. Mars is a long way off. Um, but that doesn't seem to fit in with the vision of, for example, Elon Musk. You know, he's really going for broke. He, he's just going to take the jump all the way to Mars. That may be the way to do it, but it may be that you're, you're, you're risking doing those first experiments in the hardest place in the possible. hardest place possible. All right, I want to finish up talking about what we should be doing right now in terms of a space. Is is this space tourism a good idea just to get people interested in it again or what's what do you think is the, are the most important things? List 3 that you think are critical. <laughs> well, it puts puts me on the spot. Space tourism, I I feel it would be lovely if it could be available to anyone mm-hmm. instead of just the, rich the super rich because it, we know that there is something transformative about seeing our planet from on high. You know, it's right. called the overview effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be useful. <laughs> that might be an interesting thing to add to our, our experience of the world. So I think I, I'm kind of neutral on space tourism. I think the things we absolutely should be doing is to some extent what's already happening with SpaceX, which is to get better at putting stuff in space without using so many resources. I mean, 
the drive to bring down the cost of space launch means mm-hmm. that they're recycling the, the boosters and so on. But that is also actually environmentally sound, right? Mm-hmm. You're using far fewer resources mm-hmm. to get into space. Because in space, uh, there's a lot of terribly important stuff we can do. So I think there should be uh, even greater emphasis on Earth observation, you know, under present administrations around the world, there are some challenges to our ability to monitor what's happening on the planet. Mm -hmm. So if you talk to climate scientists and Earth scientists, they have a thousand ideas for missions that you could put in orbit around the Earth to learn new things about how our planet functions that could help mitigate all the challenges that we're facing. So I think that's a really important thing that could happen Mm -hmm. and isn't quite happening yet. Mm -hmm. But then the exploration of our solar system and beyond... I find scientifically fascinating, but I think it's also, it has the potential, as it has in the past, to form a sort of statement about our unity as a species that we're sorely missing (laughs) most of the time. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because we haven't had quite enough truly inspirational stuff happening out there. I mean, the Apollo missions for a moment (laughs) inspired people. I think the first time we got to Mars, we were inspired and so on. There are a lot more frontiers out there, a lot more, you know, first-time things to be done. And so an increased capacity to get into space is in, tremendously important for that, both scientifically and I and I feel at an emotional level for, for, for the species. Yeah. yeah. And lastly, do you have any thoughts on Space Force? How do scientists <laughs> feel about that? Like, oh, well. I think we have a really good laugh. Yeah, do you? Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a space force. Space force. I, you know, uh, gosh, I, it's certainly true that space is a platform for all sorts of um, military and intelligence mm-hmm. activity that we may not really want to have mm-hmm. happening. And and it's, it has the potential for one country to have an edge over another country. But space force just feels childish and stupid. Oh, perfect. We'll end on that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is Caleb Sharp. He is the director of astrobiology at Columbia University. He wrote a great piece that you should read in Scientific American called Death on Mars. And it's great because you do have enthusiasm for going to Mars. And at the same time, we're being realistic about what happens to humanity when they get there. Um, And it's really important, especially since a lot of tech billionaires are trying to get us all to go there. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Caleb, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, mm-hmm. Caleb underscore Scharf uh, at Twitter, and you can just, just Google me. You'll All right, and me. the programs at Columbia? Programs at Columbia, you'll find information about that. It's kind of a, a community of people working on these on these questions, but you can get all of that just by searching at Columbia and looking for astrobiology. Great. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And to make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. 
Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.